Good morning. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you're listening to Money Management. We're here on Saturdays at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to hopefully give you some good insights into what's going on and what's going to be going on so you can make some informed decisions. Well, we had a pretty good day yesterday. All three major market indicators hit new all-time highs. The Dow ended at 30,153, up at 183 points. The Dow's up 5.7% so far for the year. The S&P ended at 3691, uh, a a new high. That's up 14.3% for the year. And the NASDAQ, it also ended at a new high, 12,442, up 38.6% for the year. So pretty good start to the year, I'd say. And I'd like to have a showing of hands of everyone who thought we'd be here at this time of year when, oh, back in February and March. (laughs) That would be actually nobody. Um... So so what's changed over these last few weeks? Well, in my opinion, it's very simple. Investor perceptions. The excellent economic reports we've been seeing recently, these are what they call lagging reports because once they come out, it's just news that's already happened. So it's simply reporting what's been going on over the past few months, and the economic strength has been in place for some time. Now, stock prices have been held down by the overwhelmingly excessive pessimism and uncertainty in place since April. With a vaccine in place, or vaccines even, uh, and the elections mostly over, all of a sudden it's apparently okay to look ahead more than one day. So let's look at some of what's happened as a direct result of these changes in perceptions. First thing, stocks are coming off their very best month in more than 30 years. And again, having set multiple new highs in many market indices, we set multiple highs just this past week. The Dow in November gained more than 11%. That was its best one-year performance since January of 1987. The S&P 500 500 up 10.8% in the month. NASDAQ up 11.8% for the month. Those were their best uh, moves since the uh, virus started in April. And small caps uh, were one of the biggest winners as well. The Russell 2000, which tracks those, up 20.6% for the month. That's its best month ever. Now, the cyclical sectors, those are the most economically sensitive groups, have led to rally. Energy was, uh, well, has been 2020's biggest losing sector. Well, for the month, it was up 26.6%. Financials, industrials, materials all gained at least 12% during the period. Now, the big drivers in the recent week has been the performance of financial and energy shares. It's not so much that these stocks are simply all of a sudden doing well. It's that they're bouncing back after previously, I guess you could call them, terrible performances. Still, that does count because up is up. Now, in the month, Boeing and American Express led the way for the Dow. Boeing was up almost 46% for the month. American Express up 30%. And we saw more new highs in November on both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ than we've seen since early in 2018. Of the companies that have been in the S&P 500 all year, 464 of them were up for the month. That's pretty dang unusual, I'm here to tell you. But it isn't like the vast majority of the S&P 500 has just stood around uh, all spring and summer. Even before this past month's jump, 487 of the S&P 500 had positive returns since the bears 
bear markets 20, March 23rd low. More importantly, you know the thought, the word that's going on to tech and tech-like companies alone were driving the rally? That's been wrong from the start. The new bull market has always had broad participation. It's actually just getting broader, and it's taken a while for people to notice, which speaks mostly to that sentiment. And by the way, it's not just us. The Pan-European Stocks 600 Index which, strangely enough, covers 600 stocks in Europe, is up over 14% on the month. That's its best month since they began keeping records in 1986. There's also something called the Global Dow Index. It's broken out of a multi-year base to new all-time highs. It's made up of 150 blue-chip corporations from all around the world. So, And almost 20% of that index is made up of financials. In the U.S., financials are still below their 2007 highs, so kind of leads you to believe that there's something going on here. And stock indexes in general are now above where most analysts expected them to end the year, and even before the virus. So relief from the largest economic shock in modern history has enabled investors to finally look forward. Several vaccines now seemingly on the way. Faster than was widely expected, I think it's fair to say. And so the reasons to view 2020, at least in the market context, as an aberration is worth overlooking has definitely increased. And by the way, the Dow, the Dow 30, the Dow Industrials, is oriented toward shares of banks and manufacturers. And these guys are particularly sensitive to the economy's trajectory. And so that the reason the index has trailed both the S&P and uh, NASDAQ for the year uh, but it's still, again, now up about 9%, so no one's complaining. Recent rally, recent Dow rally, uh, has been sending positive signals to those who believe that major indices perform best when the economy is coming out of a recession and growth-sensitive companies such as banks do lead the way. You know, you, you hear about value, value shares, and people keep looking for value to take the reins permanently. It's had value has had several prior short bursts of leadership in the market, and those pundits, those kids that just go out and say stuff, I'm not exactly sure where they get their motivation sometimes, but they had seized on all of that as a sign of a permanent shift. But growth has led overall, and it takes a fundamental change in market conditions for longer-term leadership to shift. That's why the value sector, if you will, that their prior stretches of outperformance hadn't lasted. They stem from sentiment, not from fundamental changes. And it kind of seems like that might be the case this time as well. You know, for months we've been hearing all kinds of thoughts that a vaccine would be a catalyst for the small value-oriented stocks to outperform. And we have seen, uh, again, the Russell 2000 hit uh, new all-time records. So, if a vaccine were, in fact, a fundamental driver for value leadership, then based on how markets generally work, i.e. looking ahead, it would have shown up in returns before November. So, while we continue to monitor growth and value trends, we do think this suggests that the pop in November could have been perhaps another sentiment-based reaction. But, leadership or no, value stocks have definitely participated in this bull market going back to March. In our view, this pundit's inability to see this speaks to the bleak pessimism that has led so many to dismiss the upturn for the entirety of its climb so far. 
you know, perhaps the story changed in November, but if so, fine. But investors shouldn't see that necessarily as a material turning point for those kinds of stocks. Now, one thing you need to be aware of, we are not seeing any deterioration in breadth like we saw in January and February. We're actually seeing expansion of breadth. In other words, more companies are participating in the market move, not just the you know, the FANG stocks, the big five stocks that you've always been hearing about. And more countries are breaking out to new highs as well, not fewer. So these are all characteristics of bull markets and uptrends, not bear markets and downtrends. And so you've heard, you know, like what you're saying, tech, discretionary communications, they're not in the market anymore. You know, the, Quincy Crosby, I think, did a good job. She's uh, chief market strategist at Prudential Financial. She says, and I'm quoting, the death of big tech has been announced over and over again. And we see that the market doesn't abandon them, but in fact goes to big tech whenever there are concerns, unquote. But when you look at the small and mid-cap indices for those sectors, they've still been breaking out to new highs. Now, just to really aggravate my close personal buddies, the perma bears, the large cap indices are breaking out as well. Now, there are some uh, uh, ETFs that you can track these. The XLC is communications, XLK is tech, XLY is consumer discretionary. And when you break these down to more specific industry groups, you've seen recent new all-time highs across the board. The semiconductors, um, you can find them uh, a, a representative piece of them anyway, under SMH. The software sector is in IGV. Cloud computing, if you want to know about that, SKYY. And the internet is under FDN. So, again, these are just uh, uh, ETFs that you can use to track those particular sectors if you feel that's worth focusing on or adding to your overall um, portfolio. So small caps, transports, emerging markets, they aren't the laggards anymore. They've been in the leadership groups for months. Now, I think we're still in the early innings of a new cyclical bull market within this ongoing secular bull market. Remember, secular markets can last for multiple years. I hope that you're comfortable with the thought that we have a very strong market here. There's, there's no bubbles going on. We've barely even gotten going, in my opinion, and it's still very early. Now, at this time of year, I think it's also something. Peter Lynch had a, a, a very uh, good phrase, I think. He was probably the best individual investor uh, in my experience. He ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund for multiple years. In any case, he has this one phrase, and I'm quoting, there's no shame in losing money on a stock. Everybody does it. What's shameful is to hold on to a stock, or worse, buy more of it when the fundamentals are deteriorating, unquote. So at this time of year, and we're starting to do this for our clients, you get into what's called tax loss selling. You know, hopefully you've had some good move ups, moves up in a lot of your portfolio, but there's just some of these sick, lame, and lazy things that are out there going, hey, why I own this? So you may want to consider in a taxable account, um, taking uh, some losses, you have to wait 31 days if you still think it's a good stock to buy it back to get have the loss. But you can take the loss this year, and uh, if you've taken gains or are contemplating taking gains, you can use that to offset them. Talk with your tax person about the details, but I think it's a very good idea to help uh, minimize the tax in what could be a very good market environment. Now, I got to say, I, I have one aside I got to do. It's, it, hopefully, it's the last thing I'm going to talk about politics. But I've been getting a lot of comments, questions, 
concerns about what happens when we have the changing of the guard here pretty soon. Uh, well, here's, here's how it goes. On December 14th, the Electoral College will vote. On January 6th, a joint session of Congress is going to count and certify those votes. And then we'll have an inauguration on January 20th. Now, the market shall have priced this in before it arrives. And I think the, the falling uncertainty we've had throughout these uh, past few weeks and probably the next several weeks as well is, in my opinion, a bullish tailwind. And we'll probably have a few hiccups along the way. I mean, come on. You know, even in rallies, stocks don't move in straight lines. But here's the thing. I've been helping people with their investment decisions through 12 presidential elections now, beginning in 1976. It's our greatest known unknown. Now, every four years, nobody knows how it's going to come out. And every time, every time, the supporters of both candidates have forecasted the end of our national life as we know it if that other guy wins. Well, realistically, the last time I've encountered so many investors passionately wanting to get out of the stock market or be very careful, quote-unquote, about the market before an inauguration was in 2008. People are fearing that the candidate then, as well as this uh, uh, president-elect, would plunge our nation into chaos. And in the next breath, many of those same people are saying they plan to get back in the market after things settle down. So what, in effect, they're contemplating doing is blowing up their long-term investment strategy to avoid a potential short-term, short-duration volatility. And, of course, there's always a question of when and how do you get back in. It seems that in neither instance is a lot of rationality being practiced. And, by the way, for the record... The Monday before the election day uh, in 2008, the S&P closed at 9.30. It closed this past election eve at 33.10, which is more. So perhaps that you can see why my experience and observations of this kind of result has had the effect of my shrugging off these elections. And further, if you go back in history... The difference between a president who is a Republican and a president who is a Democrat, their returns in the marketplace over their terms has been something like two-tenths of one percent over time. You know, we all have our personal um, biases and opinions and prejudices, etc. But this is more important than those. If you want to be able to support your retirement, you want to put your kids through school, etc., etc., Try not to let your emotions get in the way of reasonable thinking. That's hopefully all I'll be saying on these things for a while. Well, let's jump over to the economy because we did have some reports and they were all pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know the big thing about uh, Cyber Monday, Black Friday. Uh, anyhow, half as many people visited brick and mortar stores on Black Friday as they did a year ago, and the folks who did made fewer stops. This is according to Adobe Analytics. They say, too, that online spending jumped up 22% from a year ago. That was the second-best online shopping day ever measured by those folks. Amazon said that this year's holiday for them has been the biggest in its history. And that's got to be pretty dang big. So, And then on Cyber Monday, uh, folks spent $10.8 billion online, 
which is the largest online U.S. shopping day ever. So Black Friday, Cyber Monday, pretty good combo. And again, this also uh, attributed to Adobe Analytics. They say that Cyber Monday spending rose 15% year over year. And what they do is they look at uh, website uh, trades from 80 of the top 100 U.S. online retailers. So I think that's probably a pretty good sample. Now, data firm IHS Market said that its composite index of U.S. business activity. Now, this, the, by the way, these kinds of reports, I think you can see why and how they help support the marketplace, even though there is not a direct link between the markets and the economy. So, I'm sorry, let me try it again. Data firm IHS Market and its composite index of U.S. business activity that covers both the service and manufacturing sector showed the strongest rate of growth since March of 2015. An increase in new orders is what helped drive the gains. Now, we did learn that the gross domestic product le uh, report for the third quarter, the second revision, showed a 33.1% growth rate in the third quarter, um, and it had contracted, as you may recall, at about a 31% rate in the second quarter, which was the biggest drop since they started keeping records in 1947. That's from the Commerce Department. Now, the big news in the GDP report, this most recent one, was that the economy-wide corporate profits just took off in the third quarter. They hit an all-time record high, even higher than pre-virus levels. Business investment, which had been a real major drag on GDP in the second quarter, well, that was a major tailwind in the third quarter. Looks like it's going to continue to support growth going through this quarter. Now, uh, and, and what about the fourth quarter? Well, there's a couple estimates out there. IHS market themselves have a model that says we're looking for 6% growth in this quarter. Numura Security says 57 and whatever they, they suggest that the overall economy is rebounding at a faster clip than many people anticipated, and I'm sure that's a fair statement. Now, new, order, new orders for durable goods, that's stuff that's more, supposed to last more than three years, airplanes, furniture, cars, etc., etc. Well, the new orders beat the expectations in October and started the fourth quarter off on strong footing, the service sector activity, this is for the uh, national economy, continued to expand in November, but a slightly lower rate than in October. Manufacturing sector continued its recovery last month. Pickup and activity remained broad-based. 16 of the 18 industries within the sector reported expansion. Only two uh, contracted, uh, let's see, what are, printing and related support and the petroleum and coal products. Now, the headwind to faster activity is coming more from supply-side difficulties than from a lack of demand. People want to buy stuff. I think we saw that with these uh, cyber uh, reports. But the supply chains, and well, supply chains are continuing to come back up, but they're still having difficulty responding to all these silly random virus restrictions, keeping people from moving around. And so this problem is lifting prices. Private payrolls, that is to say, uh, non-farm jobs rose by 307,000 in November. That's according to ADP. And the uh, initial jobless claims dropped more than expected at the lowest level since the virus showed up. So hiring is definitely continuing. And, uh, oh, now here's one on the other side of the uh, economy. You know, you keep talking about inflation. People have say, oh, yeah, inflation, that's going to come. Well, there's a couple of things going on right now. I started talking about inflation because it's starting to 
perk up? Not a lot. You don't have to be, uh, you know, totally concerned, but be aware that it's out there on the horizon. And here, here's what I'm basing this on is commodity price. I mean, actual things you can touch. The copper price, and they call that king copper because it tends to lead a lot of these uh, commodity markets because it's used in so many different ways, construction and, uh, well, cars, all that stuff. So that copper price itself is up 66% from March. That's a bunch. Aluminum prices are up 41% from their lows in May. And lumber and ags, well, they're trending higher as well. Uh, emerging market countries where people are saying, hey, you should start be uh, looking, perhaps include those in some of your portfolios, it, they pretty much are one-trick ponies, a lot of them. In other words, their, their economies are based on one product, uh, cocoa, uh, oil, uh, you name it. There's all kinds of different excuse me, countries that are pretty much tied to one thing, and they are commodity-oriented. So if world economies go down, these guys go down perhaps even more. But as the economies tend to come back up, this is why a lot of folks are looking at saying, hey, the emerging markets may be a good place to go, but also be aware of inflation because it's hard to stop once it starts. Wages don't cause inflation. It's money supply growth. So Fed has to be on its toes. Uh, oh, and just a couple notes about real estate before we go on. New home sales continue to do very well in October, easily beating uh, expectations. Sales are above 29% above where they were in January, and that was a high. So pending home sales are 20% higher than October a year ago. That's a measure of signed contracts on existing homes. And it's also a more recent read on buyer activity because it actually represents people out shopping and making purchase decisions. So there you are. Now let's see what some of these tea leaf reader folks have to say about where they think the market's going. And uh, <laughs> there's this one guy. His name's David Rosenberg. He's the guy that walks around with a cloud over his head. You know, what's that guy in uh, Little Abner, Mr. Mixelplix? You know, you know the world is always terrible, and oh my goodness, this guy, this guy is a poster boy for perma bears. But he he made a comment that I thought was well, kind of funny. He said he's not sure when it's going to happen, but he's confident investors will face another big correction in the stock market. Well, if that isn't the stop clock school of economic forecasting, I don't know what it is. I mean, you're bound to be right sometime if you just keep saying the same story. In any regard. Willem Sells. Willem is global chief marketing strategist at HSBC Private Banking in Geneva, Switzerland. He's uh, talking on behalf of HSBC, and he says the bank is overweight stocks. And I'm quoting what he said. He said, it's quite healthy for a market to rally on broadening support. We don't know the exact timing, but we do know the direction of travel. And we do know that six or 12 months from now, the economy will be bigger than it currently is, and profits will be bigger than they are currently. He said there's no real threat coming from the fixed income space for growth stocks. And he said the structural case for tech isn't behind us. We continue to have this whole digital revolution, which continues to support superior growth, he said. And finally, he said there are also overweight emerging markets. And I'm quoting, you have central banks having your backs on the credit side with the emerging markets. It won't eliminate all the stock volatility, 
But you know you're investing with central banks continuing to do that, and it will give you a lot of confidence, unquote. Now, First Trust Portfolios, home of Brian Westbury, who I think is the uh, perhaps most cogent economist in the country. In any case, um, they have, uh, in terms of how they come up with their uh, projections, they have what's called a capitalized profits model. And they take the government's measure of profits from the GDP reports, and then they discount it by the U.S. Treasury note yield to come up with the number. Well, as I said earlier, corporate profits for the third quarter up at a record high, up 3.3% from a year ago. So, what's the question? What what rate? What discount rate should we use? If they use the current 10-year Treasury yield of 0.97%, the model would suggest the S&P is grossly undervalued. But that's only because the Fed's holding the entire interest rate structure down, so that de- distorts valuations. Now, on the other hand, if we use third-quarter profits it would take a 10-year yield of 2.8%, which is infinitely higher than where we, that which would be basically about 2% higher than where it is now, from their model to show that the stock market is currently trading at fair value. And that would assume no further growth in profits. So what they what they do is they assign a, a number. And so they expect a 10-year note to finish next year in the range of one and a quarter to one and a half percent. So not much growth in interest rates. They've also chosen to use a more conservative 2% discount rate in their model. So using third quarter 2020 profits, this then, using this model, this mathematical model, creates a fair value estimate estimate for the S&P of 5150, 5150. And this doesn't take into account the highly likely boost to profits in the year ahead. And they think that their year-end forecast for this year at 4200 is uh, probably very uh, much within reach. Uh, George Catr- oh man, sorry, George Catrambone, uh, George Catrambone of uh, head of America's trading at DWS. He says, "I think you're seeing a bit of a catch-up trade in value stocks. You've had investors riding five stocks for a very long time. Now they're giving way to 495 others. Yeah, that's pretty right." Now Jonathan Golub. He, chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse, he says, and I'm quoting, I think that there's been a real shift in the last several weeks where investors are much more excited about cyclical companies that are really plays on the reopening of the economy. He said interest in energy, industrials, and materials will continue for now. He goes on to say, and I'm also quoting, I think you could ultimately see a reversion back to the growth stocks that have been driving a lot of the success because they've been driving a lot of the earnings. He adds, there are two sectors that haven't participated in the upside over the last six months that are likely to do well, they believe, in 2021. They are financials and healthcare. They are the two relatively least expensive groups uh, compared to the way they normally trade in the market. Now, Goldman Sachs says the S&P could end next year at 4,300. And uh, J.P. Morgan says the the S&P could jump to 4,000 by early next year which was about a 10% jump from here. Now, Jeremy Siegel. Jeremy Siegel is a professor at the Wharton School of Business. He's also wrote a book uh, that I would recommend anyone who's an uh, investor called Stocks for the Long Run. Uh, but he's also uh, had a comment this week about bonds. And he said, and I'm quoting, I strongly believe that the 40-year bull market in bonds, which started in 1981 with a 10-year yield at over 16%, it is now 
not even 1%, has ended. He says, we'll never in our lifetime, and maybe even our children's lifetime, see long-term treasury returns as low as we saw them this year. He sees higher inflation and stronger economic growth that will spell the end of this long bond bull market. By the way, the bull market in bonds was the longest bull market in any major asset class in world history. It had interruptions, but it went from 16%, as he said, in 81, to uh, 0.5% in 39 years. But he believes that we've hit bottom this year. And to dovetail on that, back to the inflation, uh, the upticks in the commodity prices, you're starting to see higher rates, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and these do not stand uh, bonds in good stead uh, in terms of being able to continue to be a uh, money-making proposition. I mean, you'll earn interest, but you won't see much, if any, appreciation. Before I kind of sum up today's uh, broadcast, I want to touch on gold. Now, people who listen to me know that I'm not a fan of gold. I never have been. Uh, but it's been quite active of late uh, with all this uncertainty and stuff going on, and people are asking me, should I invest in gold? How, what about gold, silver, whatever? So I want to try and... Uh, kind of put it in context. See, as an advisor, not only do we, you know, suggest things that folks should do, we also suggest things that they shouldn't do. So I'm just going to lay this out here and I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But um, anyway, so we, here we are. We're back at the top of the proverbial bubble before gold crashed about 45% in 2011. Silver dropped about 75%. Now that took nine years, but here we are. Um, you know, if gold is about to start outperforming, as all these ads seem to suggest, and is finally going to break out of this 11-year base, it sure has a funny way of showing it. Now, as I just said, full disclosure, never been a big fan of gold. It's not a productive asset. It doesn't generate any cash flows, and it's only worth what someone else is willing to pay for. Now, technically, that's true about stocks, houses, cars, whatever, but in this case, there is no central exchange. Gold's value depends on others' faith in it, as there are very few practical applications for it, aside from jewelry. Yet, there's occasional evidence that gold can serve as a hedge against inflation, so it may serve a purpose as a very small position in a diversified portfolio. Now, let's face it. Gold's a strange metal. It's a commodity that sometimes behaves as a safe haven asset only because of its perception as a store of value for thousands of years. Uh, a, a writer for uh, Morningstar, uh, the research company, said it well. He said, the best way to think of gold is as a non-yielding currency with a special trait. The only way you can print it is to pull it out of the earth at great cost, unquote. No thank you. So like any foreign currency, the price of gold tends to move in the opposite direction of the strength of the U.S. dollar. So over short periods... Gold hasn't been closely related to stock price moves, but over longer holding periods, the two assets have been negatively correlated. In other words, gold has tended to do well when stocks are doing poorly and vice versa. So like most commodities, gold prices have been positively related with inflation. Gold can and has lost purchasing power over decade-long spans. It did that between August 93 and December 2005. And as I always remember, investors who bought gold at its record high real price in January 80, which was 850 at that time, and is now adjusted to something like $2,200 for inflation, 
they're still waiting to be made whole on an inflation-adjusted basis. Gold is clearly not a perfect inflation hedge. Now, see, there's this thing called opportunity cost. Gold doesn't yield anything. In other words, there's no interest, no dividends. So there's an opportunity cost to own it. And because current prices and future returns move in opposite directions, the expected returns on gold are positively correlated with real interest rates, even though gold yields nothing. So low interest rates inflate gold prices now, but tend to depress future returns. Now, rising interest rates hold gold prices by increasing the opportunity cost of holding it. So a bet on gold is also a bet that real interest rates will remain low, not unlike investing in bonds today because that's what people appear to be doing. Now, real interest rates are near record lows, so it's not surprising that real gold prices in U.S. dollars are also near record highs. Viewed in this manner, gold is hardly a screaming buy. And finally, consider this. If gold is so good and the dollar is so bad, going to be wallpaper at best. And according to the ads, you need to buy that shiny metal right now because the collapse of those dollars is imminent. Then why, tell me, would they ever offer to trade all their wonderful gold for your lousy dollars? Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> so, draw your own conclusions. Now, get used to the phrase, since January 2018, because there's been a whole lot of indicators that have reached those levels last seen then. How about the four-week total of inflows, global inflows, into stock funds, highest since January 2018? Likewise, the ratio of upward to downward profit estimate revisions for the S&P. Fund managers in the Bank of America's late, latest monthly client survey uh, had their highest portfolio allocation to stocks since January 2018. And week before last, the American Association of Individual Investors showed 55% were bullish. The most since, well, you can guess. Yeah, 2018. So since late 2003, when I first started keeping track of this, the annualized rate of growth in the U.S. and global stocks has been about 7%. Very much pretty much the same as long-term annualized return rate of U.S. stocks, not counting dividends. So as to say, there's no obvious evidence of any stock bubble. The world has prospered. Very simple. Those who were fortunate or smart enough to have invested in or remain invested in stocks at the bottom of, in early 2009 have since enjoyed a total return, and again, not counting dividends, of about 270%. Similarly, the market capitalization of global stocks today is about 60% higher than it was in late March of 2009 at the height of the panic. Needless to say, it would seem fairly obvious that selling during times of panic is not a winning strategy over the long haul. Buying is. Well, for instance, if you had $100,000 in the market at the pre-virus peak this year and sold lower, say uh, you kept about $83,000, if you had stayed in the market, you'd now have about $107,000 more or less. That's about 30% more money than when you pulled out. That's not a good thing to feel. But the alternative is worse. The temptation to wait stubbornly for the market to go to its lows, a day that may never come. <clears throat> During the crisis, the financial crisis, the market turned sharply higher in March of 2009, even though it was... Uh, not yet clear by a long shot that a collapse of the financial system could be averted. 
when the all clear did come several months later, the excuse me, the market was up about 60% through October. So, sound familiar? You know, folks who dumped their stocks during the financial crisis face the same choice current market dropouts do now. Those who jump back in after the crisis eased in 09 have more than tripled their money despite buying back at what must have seemed like an outrageous price at the time, while those who waited for the ideal elusive reentry, well, I don't know exactly what they've done. Hopefully they're not still waiting. But there's a lot of other examples. With rare exception, when the market takes off from the depths of a crisis, it's a signal that it's moved on, even if some, I think in this case, a lot of investors have not. Chances are the market has moved on from the virus, and investors should be too. The next time, and oh yes, there will be a next time, investors are tempted to dump their stocks during a crisis. I don't think they should focus on getting out, but getting back in. That should clarify the wisdom of staying put. You know, no one, no one can anticipate the bottom or top in advance, which means that the reentry will either be too early or too late. Now, too early is unrealistic. If you're tempted to run for the exit when the market is down 20%, you probably won't be in the mood to buy when it's down 30 or more. So that leaves one alternative, buy late, which is the pickle some investors are in now. Best to avoid that quandary altogether by just sticking with it. See, markets are forward-looking. They anticipate. Uh, the, the economic reports, for the most part, uh, are, again, backward-looking. So markets look out. They anticipate what's happening three to six months from now. Now, I've been bullish since April of 2009. It's a matter of record. I've said it on the air here. And not because I'm a per permable, as my detractors like to say, but because the fundamentals are, well, they say I should be. It's real simple. Profits and interest drive stocks, the earnings. Let those factors determine your outlook. Not politics, not fear, not greed, just math. Just the facts, Jack. So I hope you have a fine week. Needless to say, go Zags. Those folks are doing great. And boy, I'll tell you what, what a, what a group. The coach and the team, they're, they're outstanding. So enjoy your week. I hope it's a profitable one. We'll be back next Saturday to talk with you about it. Thank you very much for having listened. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.